Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for so graciously and wondrously this morning drawing our eyes to the centrality the magnificence and the uniqueness of Christ. We look upon him, we look upon wisdom personified, beauty personified, grace and peace and compassion, and yet justice, wrath and anger towards sin as well, all perfectly displayed in that you would use the truth of your word or the power of your Holy Spirit to open up our eyes and to illuminate the meaning of the text to us this morning so that we might more accurately, more regularly, more personally grasp the glory of Christ, his love for us, and thus be motivated to live a life worthy of the gospel that brings honor to Christ. And see, we see people coming to confess Christ, and we see the believer built up in Christ. And this is our, our prayer today. So be with us, Lord. Do your work as we have so accurately were reminded of in our Sunday school that what we are in need of is a sovereign spiritual work by you, done within our hearts to change us. You've changed us once in bringing us to Christ. Now we need the, the continual working of you in our lives to make us like Christ. And so we pray that that's what happens today. We love you and we thank you for this time. And it's in Jesus's matchless, wonderful name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Well, I'm going to give another shameless plug for Sunday School as we start our message this morning. Um, this has just been a really wonderful study that we've been going through, biblical anthropology, what is man. Um, there is so much writing on this, and so I would encourage you, come, like, please come. I, if you can't come, please watch live. And if you can't watch online, watch live, then watch afterward or watch before. We have the link to where all these messages are um, available. And so please follow along. Because especially what it is that we were learning about in Sunday school this morning is just Paul Washer's way of saying what I've been trying to say, but he said it much better than I did. And what it is that we were learning from Romans chapter 1 and its implications on the sinfulness of mankind and the depravity of man. We've been talking about this, and as we move into chapter 2, which we began last week, um, we saw some of the implications and the applications of this as it pertains to those people who are like within the church. And so, um, because Paul's God, being the primary, the first author of Scripture, his, is building really an argument. As you read through, if you're beginning to grasp what it is that's being laid in Romans chapter 1, as it continues on through chapter 2, goes into chapter 3, it's just, it's like, it's like this divine prosecutor is, laying, is making this case for the sinfulness and depravity of all mankind, and there's nobody that can escape it. 
And, um, and so because of that, he's got this, this thought that's flowing through Romans chapter 1 and through chapter 2 into chapter 3, and it will have implications later on as we work through the rest of the book as well. Um, but because of that, and we're only in one small chunk, you know, each Sunday morning, I want us to just do a bit of review every Sunday to catch us up to speed of where we're going to be today. And so I want to do that very briefly this morning before we get into Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which is where we will be spending most of our time this morning. So just a short review real quick to kind of catch us up to speed. Romans, I'm going to begin in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, and it is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter how old you are, how smart you are, how rich you are, if you're, if you're Jew or you're Greek. Paul does this thing where he essentially breaks all of humanity, mankind, into two categories, Jew and Gentile. And by doing so, he covers all all, all ethnicities, all humanity. And the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, and it is not a respecter of persons. It does not matter if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel equally to all. And then in Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, God's wrath is revealed through what it is that we would call natural law, through these two components of creation and the human conscience. And it is not a respecter of persons either. God's wrath is revealed to all mankind through creation and through the human conscience. But what we've seen in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, as Paul continues his argument, is that mankind has rejected both. And that was clearly reiterated to us this morning in Sunday school. Mankind has rejected God's righteousness and his character. Not only that, but he, they, mankind has rejected um, what can be known about God just generally through creation as well. And because of that, in verses 24 through 32 of Romans 1, sinful activity has broken loose. And sinful activity, as we know, as we look around, it really knows no bounds. What it is that mankind, because they hate God and reject God, as he says in 123, they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Because man has done that, sin has, and depravity has sunken in and it has broken loose and it is widespread and mankind is depraved in their nature and total depravity rendering man unable to come to God, not just unable, but undesiring to come to God, completely rejecting Him. And then what it was that we saw last week in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is that this is true for all mankind. It's not just that those who are hearing this letter read in the church in Rome can point their finger at those in the world and go, look at all those disgusting, sinful pagans. He's saying this is actually exists within the church as well. And the hypocrites, those people who condemn that action in other people and yet do it themselves, will one day be completely exposed for who they truly are. And um, Paul's making that case very, very clear. And then what it is that we are going to see today is a reminder that God upholds this standard. He will show no partiality or favoritism, and that everybody will be judged based on the standard of their works. And within the larger context of Romans, this will be extremely helpful for us. I'll put it like this. 
God's standard is perfection. Absolute, personal, perpetual, complete obedience and perfection to him. If you think about it, if, you think, if, you're, if this is helpful to you, you think about it in covenantal terms. It is what the covenant of works requires and demands, perfection. And it is what the covenant of grace provides for us, for those who are in Christ on our behalf. Creation's rebel, that's what God demands. But sin has ensued. And so creation, revelation, has this baseline uh, function that continues to go on to where it's revealing a partial nature of who God is, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Um, there's a partial knowledge of God. There's this in, in, internal moral law that is going on. And that sinful man, even in their sinfulness, would ideally live and hover around this idea of what it is that creation is doing and should restrain some measure of sinfulness. If, if, if fallen man just listened to the chorus that creation is singing and we just acknowledge God, not salvifically, but just mankind had a basic knowledge of who God was and listened to the moral compass that God has implanted inside each person, um, things would be better off than where we are. And ideally, that's where man would live. But the fact of the matter is, is that we plunged way deeper than that. And mankind, that's where mankind would live. Ideally, where mankind lives realistically is that there's all kinds of wickedness and depravity that goes on in the way that we treat one another and the way that we feel towards God and hate God and treat God as well. And what we're going to see today is that God has a standard of how man should live, and he does not compromise on what that standard is. So let's read Romans chapter 2. I'm actually going to begin in verse 5, just to help us bring forward last week's passage into this week's, and then we'll read 6 through 11 as well and spend majority of our time in 6 through 11. Paul would say this beginning in verse 5, but because of your hard an impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. What's made clear in our text today is that God shows no partiality and that he will render to each person according to their works. In order for there to be no partiality, it means that you have, to universe, you have to have a universal standard, which is what we know to be true from Scripture. God has a universal standard for all mankind, and that standard is perfection. And, 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 and so in order for God to not show partiality, it means the same standard has to be applied universally across the board to everybody. Favoritism and partiality exists when, one, when the set of rules applies to one person but not another person. 
And God being completely just, completely holy and pure, has the same standard for all people, and that standard is perfection. And he will not show any partiality. And that's one of the things that we see firstly in this passage, that judgment from God comes without partiality. You look at this and you see this very clearly spoken of in verses 6 and 11. He will render to each one according to his works, for God shows no partiality. And this is going to be imposed, this universal standard of judgment will be imposed fully and finally on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed from verse 5. So there's a day that's coming, a day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. On that day, he will render to each one according to his works, and it will be a judgment that is without partiality. It's a universal day we see in verse 6, that this is a universal day because of the term each one. He He will render to each one. Every person will give an account for their life that they have lived. And that account will be, did you achieve the standard of perfection? And he's not going to be partial to anybody. I mean, he makes that clear. Um, One of his other points in verses 9 and 10 is to show and to remind the Jews that are among the Gentile, the predominantly Gentile church in Rome, that they will not receive partiality. They may think, and he'll get into this in chapter 3, right? Well, then what advantage is the Jew? The Jew had all of this information. I mean, natural law reveals some things about God that is evident to all mankind. But God took Israel and and, and made a further revelation of who he is and his character. So they had even less of an excuse as to why they disobeyed him. So they're not going to be able to stand before him and go, well, you called us out. From the beginning, we were your your chosen people out of all the nations from the world in the Old Testament. You loved us and you set your, your seal and your promise and your covenants upon us. Aren't you going to be partial to us? And God is going to say, I show no partiality. All people are held accountable equally across the board. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. My standard that's being imposed is perfection. Did you meet it? is what he's going to ask. It's going to be based on works, and it's going to be exposing the condition of the heart. Jew and Greek are going to face the same judgment upon that day. And this is what it was that God had revealed to the apostle Peter so clearly in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, if you remember, has a vision of all these unclean animals coming down in a sheet, and God tells Peter to get up and kill and eat, and Peter's response is, I've never eaten anything unclean. This sheet sheet is full of unclean animals, and I have never partaken of anything. And so he's thinking still like in terms of Old Testament dietary laws and rules, Mosaic law. But it becomes clear to him in, as this God-ordained interaction comes about between him and this Gentile, a Roman citizen of all people, Cornelius, begins to play out 
And it becomes clear to him that the vision is not about unclean food, but it's really about those people that the Jews deem unclean in their own mind, i.e. all of the Gentiles in the world. And Paul, as Peter um, is going through this interaction, and God reveals to Peter that there is no unclean person in their eyes, in the sense that Jews are not more clean than the Gentiles, Peter's response is, he opens his mouth in Acts 10, 34. Peter, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that with God, that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What's interesting is that he goes on from there and continues to preach the gospel, which will have implications upon this text in just a little bit. But Peter comes to the understanding that God is not a God of partiality, doesn't show favoritism. Jew and Greek are all facing the same judgment of works. And what's interesting is if you read through the book of Joel in the Old Testament, it's only three chapters. And so you can sit down and read through the book of Joel from beginning to end fairly easily. But what you see is this day of judgment, the day of the Lord, and the way that Joel defines it, is it being a day of judgment for Israel, a day of judgment for the nations, a day of judgment of, uh, it's also a day, the day of the Lord is also a day of salvation, and the day of judgment for the Jews, for the Gentiles, and this day of salvation, it are, all of these days are specifically accompanied by wonders and signs and things like that that we tend to um, classify as being in, in the great day of judgment. And so even the Old Testament has this picture moving forward of this, of this one day of judgment, this universal day of judgment, the day where God's righteous judgment will be revealed and each person will render themselves according to their works and God will show no partiality on that day. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It doesn't matter where you were born. God's judgment is equal. And that's really the big picture point that Paul is making today. But um, I know that it, some people might ask and wonder, well, what's this deal with being judged according to works? Is Paul then teaching some sort of works-based righteousness in Romans chapter 2? And if you know anything about the book of Romans, you know that that's not the case, but it's good for us to consider that this morning. The big picture point is that God judges without partiality, without favoritism. It's going to be equal to all across the board. And he's not teaching a salvation by works, nor is he removing the need for the gospel, but actually quite the opposite is what he is teaching. And we see that in verses 7 through 10 as he begins to fill in the picture for us. So verses 7 through 10 show us, reveal to us, that there is a judgment not only without partiality, which we see in verses 6 and 11, but sandwiched in between verses 6 and 11, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, is that there is a judgment that really is designed to lead us without hope. If you think about what it is that he's talking here, talking about. It, he uses a literary device called a chiasm. If you're familiar with those in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, the chiasm is a literary device, and it has an A, B, B, A kind of flow to it. And so the first A, verse 7, is um, a positive 
rendering to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Amen. That sounds wonderful. The gift of e- is eternal life. But then eight, he goes to the negative. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's bad. And then in verse nine, there's another bad. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then verse 10, he returns to the good, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So he has this A-B-B-A pattern, and all of that is a literary device to help us understand the non-partial nature of God's judgment based upon works that he's, that he's talking about in verses 6 and 11. But in, rather than teaching a works-based righteousness, he's actually doing quite the opposite. Take, take a moment and let's consider what he says in verse 7. All right, so he says in verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. The reward stated is clear. It is salvation language. Eternal life is the reward for the person who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But look at what's required for that eternal life. Patience could be translated more accurately as endurance. It's an ongoing, constant enduring that never fails. By patience and well-doing, or maybe your translation says doing good. The person who endures in doing good and seeks, that word seek is a, is a continual action, who is consistently and constantly seeking for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. What's interesting is that this is, if you think about verse 7 and contrast it to what it is that we've already learned about in Romans chapter 1, this is like all brand new language, these ideas that he's using here. I mean, the only term in verse 7 that he's already used is glory, and he used it in 123 and saying that that's what sinful man has exchanged. They've exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So who among us is the person who constantly endures, constantly does good, constantly seeks for glory and honor and mortality, and therefore can receive the gift of eternal life? You see what he's doing here. He's taking the person that's resting upon their morals, resting upon some knowledge that they have, whether from the Old Testament or from the, through the preaching of the gospel or through the ministry of the apostles, but, is, but, but doesn't know Christ and thinks that based upon their own good works and their own merits, that they're going to be able to achieve eternal life. What Paul is doing in verse 7 is he's upholding the standard. He's reminding them, this is what God's standard is. It is perfection. And if you were the person 
who can endure and constantly do good and constantly seeks after glory and immortality and honor, then this is what you'll get, eternal life. What's interesting is that the word that he uses for good is a word that we're well familiar with throughout the Scriptures. That's why I wanted James to read Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 27. Because what Paul is doing here is simply, he's reiterating what it is that Jesus had already taught. Right? The rich young ruler comes to him, good, comes to Jesus. Good, te- good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? Why do you call me good? No one is good. If you're familiar with the teaching of Jesus and you're reading Romans chapter 2, verse 7, those who by patience in doing good can get eternal life, and you connect that with what Jesus said about who the only good person is, you would find out very quickly that he's making a clear indictment against them that they are incapable of doing that which would garner eternal life through works. There's only one person who's good, and it's God. And so if you can't constantly and consistently do good, then you can achieve eternal life. The problem is that none of us are good. That's been the point of Romans chapter 1. And that's the reason why the rich young ruler has a problem with Jesus' response. Okay, we'll keep the law. Okay, I've done all of these things externally. Okay, one thing you still lack, go sell all that you have. Get rid of the thing that you love the most, that your affections and your desire are completely bound up in. Get rid of that. And, and, and because he doesn't love God, he's a hater of God, and he's depraved in his nature, he cannot. Jesus demands of him what he cannot do apart from the work of Christ. He would make it even more clear Um, In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and 28 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Man loves to do this, right? What do I got to do? I mean, we're, we're legalists in our nature. We think that there's something that we can do to 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 earn God's favor. Lawyer stood up, put him to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. He affirms. The guy gets the answer right. I mean, he even makes it easier than the rich young ruler. Jesus basically lays out for him the second table of the law. For this guy, he just boils it down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all you got and love people as yourself. Jesus says, man, you've answered correctly. Go do this and you will live. But he, desiring to just himself, goes on from there. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gives him the parable of the Good Samaritan to remind him that nobody is capable of doing good in order to garner eternal life. This word is actually used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, and well, uh, verse 11 as well to describe the priestly work of Christ. 
Hebrews 9:11 says, "But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all, going on from there to talk about the priestly mediatorial work of Christ as being that which is good. So what Paul is saying here, to those who can sustain a life of good law-keeping, which that word good was used in the Old Testament as synonymous with law-keeping, to those who can sustain a life of good law-keeping that models God's own character and continually seek His honor, glory, and immortality, then you can have eternal life. And it renders every single person in the room, then and now, without hope. Because everything that he says in chapter 2, verse 8, is what it is that he's been talking about. Right? So if you can do this life in verse 7, this is the reward. But, in verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now everybody in the room should be squirming in their chair. Because verse 8 of Romans 2 is like Romans 1, 18 through 32 in capsule form. I mean, this is what it is that he's been talking about. Verse 7 is, stands completely different because it, it, he hasn't talked about this type of person at all. But verse 8, this is exactly who he's been talking about in chapter 1. For the person who is self-seeking, I mean, this is the wording that he used in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, right? Talking about those, all mankind who has fallen into sin. Covetousness, that's self-seeking. Envy is self-seeking. Murder is self-seeking. Strife is self-seeking. Deceit is self-seeking. Maliciousness is self-seeking. Gossip is self-seeking. Slander is self-seeking. And then he makes it very clear, insolent, haughty, boastful. He's talking about the self-seeking person. So when he says in chapter 2, verse 8, for those who are self-seeking, he's basically saying the person that I've spent a great deal of time describing in, in chapter 1. I'm talking about you. And as if to make it even more clear, he goes on. But not just for those who are self-seeking, but those who do not obey the truth. Well, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by the unrighteousness suppress the truth. Again in verse 5, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Borrowing again from Romans 1. And then he goes on from there in verse 8. Those who are self-seeking, they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Well, has he talked about unrighteousness already at this point too? Yes, he has in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 29. 
The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And those people, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil covetousness, so on and so forth. So in verse 8 in chapter 2, he's simply repeating in a very short way what it is that he covered at great length in chapter 1. And the point being is that if you can live a life of constant endurance, doing good like God and reflecting God's goodness, then you will receive eternal life. But if you are self-seeking, which he's already said everybody is, you do not obey the truth, which is what he's already said everybody is, and if you do not obey or if you uh, but obey unrighteousness, what he has said everybody is, there's wrath and fury. He's just, he's just in chapter 2 here, he's just a shorthand way of reestablishing and reminding everybody of what it is that God's standard of perfection is. And the covenant of works continues to proclaim this. It, 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 covenant of works existed in the garden, it, it, the Mosaic Covenant is just another reiteration of the covenant of works. Do this and you can live. But God gives them an impossible standard on purpose. Why? I mean, Paul will go into this at great length as we work through, chapter, through the book of Romans. Why does God give his people a standard of perfection that they can't keep in order for them to attain eternal life? All to magnify the work of the Son. That's how the gospel becomes rich. You begin, you, 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 you cease to look at your own goodness. You cease to look at your own works, and you begin to look solely to Christ and what it is that he has done. We shouldn't find it odd for Paul at all to repeat in chapter 2 the things from chapter 1 because he is clearly leveling all of humanity with guilt. He's reestablished the requirements of God, which is perfection. And then again in 9 through 10, it serves to remind us of this clear fact that the Jews are no better off and that the bill comes due for us all. So now that he's in our text, he's plunged us straight down into the depths of our own sin and how inescapable the judgment is. He has done so all so that we might see Jesus as presented in the gospel to us as our only hope. You see, what it is that we see in verse 7 is not only what it is that God demands of us and his righteous requirements but we have a picture of who Jesus is as well. Jesus is the only one who by enduring, did good, and sought glory and honor and immortality and, was, and is rewarded with, with eternal life. God does not weaken or lessen his standard of perfection at all. But he knows that sinful man cannot achieve it. 
So he provides his only beloved son to achieve it on our behalf. And this is why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith so that the righteous might live by faith. You are not saved by your own good works. You are not saved by your merit. There is an impossible standard that is established. No one among us can live the way that God requires to live in, for us to live in Romans 2.7. But Jesus Christ did. And we have a complete and perfect picture of the life that he lived. And we have a complete and perfect picture for what it is that we receive in Christ. You see, Christ is the one who endured, didn't he? He was the, he was the, he's the only good one. He lived the perfect life. He always did what the Father willed, all the way up to the end where he's sweating blood and saying, Father, let this cup pass from me if you will. Not my will, though, but your will be done. This constant and supreme submission to, to the will of the Father. Always the only one that was good so that those who are rebellious and bad might receive the gift of his goodness imparted to us. This is the gospel message. This is the reason why Paul, when he had his eyes open to it, his life was radically transformed and set on a new trajectory to go anywhere to preach the gospel to anybody that God had allowed him to because he saw within it the gift of eternal life. It, 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 there's the world is steeped in radical sin and depravity. And if you were here and you were paying attention to Sunday school, the... the the charge was like, what tool are you going to pull out of your back pocket in order to try and reach someone who is depraved and wicked in their sin and is a hater of God and completely turned against him? What are you going to use? What are you going to do? Are you going to tell them to try harder? Do better? Be a good person? God's, his standard is perfection. And that's what Christ met. And because of him, that's what every single person in this room who knows Christ has. You have the goodness of God. Like Adam was created by God and given a human righteousness. The Christian is given a divine righteousness by the Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 the righteousness that we have in Christ exceeds the righteousness, righteousness Adam ever had. And that's the righteousness that we will enjoy, that you have now if you're in Christ. You have this righteousness now in Christ, and you will get to enjoy it for all of eternity. A few words of exhortation for us to consider this morning. Consider the connection between what you have been given in the gospel and then what you are called to give. See, it's not as if 
God saves us by His grace, and then we're free to live however we want. People who that are really gripped by this gospel message and the display of God's love for us then desire to live a life of goodness and honor, seeking immortality in these things. What we have in, in 2.7 is not only a picture of what God requires and also a picture of what, of what Jesus met and a picture of what we've been given, but it also gives a picture of, of something for the believer to, to want to live out. I want to do good. Yeah, I know. I'll never, I'll never attain perfection. I'll never be good in the way that God alone is good. But man, how he, how he has, how he has gotten a hold of my heart to want to do some good, something that's pleasing to him, something that's honoring to him. And I think you know, Luke chapter seven is just a wonderful a picture, an example of that. You guys are familiar with it. Of course, we preached through this passage when we went through Luke, and I know everybody remembers every word I said from that, pa- from that sermon like three years ago. But right, Jesus is eating with, at a Pharisee's house, and a woman of the city who was a sinner learned that she was there, reclined at the table. She brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of, of her head and kissed his feet and anointing him with the ointment. And you drop down to Luke seven forty seven, and you find out why this is. Why is she doing these things? Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, were forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The person whose heart has been gripped by the gospel and understanding how much they've been loved by God then wants to live a life in return of love and worship and service to him and to others. The command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, that's another reiteration of the law. He's stating the impossible. You cannot be saved by doing that because nobody does it. But for those who are in Christ, we have a perfect picture of like what it is we should want to do. It should be, if you're a Christian, it should be the desire of your heart to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, all that you have within. That should be your desire. And then how does that show itself? Well, it shows itself practically in the way that you love others around you. Love your neighbor as yourself. The person whose heart has been gripped by the impossible demands of God and, the, and, the, and how Christ has met those demands on our behalf wants to live a life that, life that way. And if you're at all in tune with your, with your sinful nature and your flesh, then you're reminded of how lavish and rich the love of God is that's been poured out upon you. Obviously, we're to consider that we, as God shows no partiality, neither should we. So it's clearly condemned in James chapter 2. 
And so we need to think about in what ways and who do we tend to show partiality or favoritism to, knowing that, that, knowing that this is displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. As we prepare to take communion together, I think every, each and every one of us should be reminded of, at this time, what it is that we have in the gospel. We have the gift of eternal life, even though we have not patiently done good and sought glory and honor and immortality because Christ has on our behalf. When we partake of the communion time, we're looking at the bread that represents his body and the juice that represents his blood. It's a reminder of his, of his perfection and his goodness and his faithfulness all the way through the entirety of his life. And then you think about how he continues to display that perfect love and grace to us as he mediates on our behalf now today as well, it makes this time of communion a time of, of worship and of celebration of his goodness and his kindness to us. The righteous requirements have been met. The demands have been met on our behalf. And I know myself well enough to know that I don't do the things that I should do and I don't deserve the grace that he's shown me. And so the communion time for me is a wonderful time of like, I go, part of me goes, why? And then the other part of me just rejoices, and that's the way that it is. And the, and the position that I have in Christ. But it's also a time where I then seek to go, okay, Lord, search my heart. And see if there's any offensive way within me. I examine myself. And I come to the table as a means of grace to help me grow, to do the things that he calls me to do. And I confess in the ways that I have not lived pleasing to him, and I, and I take hold and I rest in the assurance of the pardon that he gives me in the Son as well. And he reminds me that I come to the table not because I am good, but because he is good. And so there's an invitation to come. And so if you are in Christ, and you know him by faith and by faith alone, then you are invited to partake of this meal together with us. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, then consider what it is that God requires of you and how, how vastly short you have fallen of his demand of perfection, but then how he sent his son to die on your behalf and meet that for you if you would come to him by faith. So the elements are on the tables behind you. And you can get those and return back to your seat. A time of prayer, and then we will partake of the communion elements together shortly.